Today's JJ Reddick podcast is brought to you by Belvedere Vodka. Produced in one of the world's longest-running distilleries, Belvedere Vodka is the world's finest all-natural vodka. Crafted by a collective of master distillers, Belvedere is made with non-GMO Polish rye, pure water, and no additives. Recognized for quality, Belvedere was named the ISC World Vodka Producer of the Year in 2015, 2016, and 2017. Enjoy a delicious cocktail with Belvedere Vodka today, and remember to always drink responsibly. Welcome to this week's episode of the JJ Reddick Podcast. I want to get right into my conversation with 17-year NBA veteran and current general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers, Elton Brand. I've known Elton for a number of years. We're obviously part of uh, the Duke family. He played there for two years in the late 90s. Um, So I've known him a long time, and it was good to catch up with him as he transitions into his new role as the GM of the Philadelphia 76ers. Here's my conversation with Elton Brand. EB, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Are you my boss? Um, kind first, of. first of all, my pleasure. I've been waiting <laughs> For a long time. Thanks for finally inviting me. Wonder what took you so long. But yeah, I'm, I'm, Coach is your boss, kind of, and I'm kind of your boss and kind of his boss, kind of. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> we we could start a bunch of different places. Um, we could start with uh, your career. We could start with your current occupation, and we could start with Duke. Um, but I'm going to start in kind of a weird place. Do you Do you have any nicknames? Yeah, I have a few nicknames. So, what, what are they? So one nickname that is kind of embarrassing is Slant. Slant is one of my nicknames. Um, and what is it, what is the genesis of that? Well, I grew up with probably ten or twelve friends, you know, about my age, boys, and my head is shaped kind of funny, and it's like it goes down in a slant. It's not like a circular kind of knot in the back. So that was like my real core friends. Um, so that's that's where that nickname came from. The reason I asked this is because it's a weird place to start, I know. And I, I actually just had Dirk Nowitzki, Nowitzki on the podcast. And uh, it was an oversight on my part, but this was a question that I also had for him. Um, I'm someone who spends a lot of time on basketball reference. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a supporter, actually. I, I actually I spend so much time on there that I pay for the ad-free version of basketball reference. But if you ever go on a player's basketball reference page, um, occasionally, not for every player, but occasionally underneath their name, there's like parentheses and then a few nicknames. And um, I don't have any on my, on my page. Um, but uh, like Dirk has a couple. He's got Dirty, uh, the German sports car, and Tall Baller from the G. And I've literally never heard him being referred to. Well, a dirty Dirk, I've heard that. But the other two, uh, you just, I've never heard that. So on your page, um, it's uh, EB, which obviously, you know, your initials, I don't know that's a, that's a nickname, but the other two were um, uh, Old School Chevy and Horse. 
Huh. Slant was not on there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad Slant was not on there instead of, yeah. Um, so old school Chevy, Malik Rose. Okay. That came from him okay. when he was doing color for the Sixers. While you were playing here. While I was playing okay. and while I was old, <laughs> but it was like reliable. You run the Chevy, it'll get you where you need to go. Okay. Old school Chevy. And then horse came from Sam Cassell in my Clipper days. He's like, come on, horse. I got you. You know, ride like a horse. Like, let's go, horse. Get this game. So that's where those nicknames came So Ralph came from. Lawler probably included that on a broadcast or it was in an article somewhere. Because I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the genesis of some of these nicknames. Because there's, there's actually a Reddit, there's a Reddit thread about current players. Right. And I'm going down the thread, and it, they just don't make sense. Rajon Rondo, the yoga instructor. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't describe that as even our own team, like TJ McConnell, floor general. That's not really, no one calls him floor general. No. No one calls Robert Covington Lord Covington. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think it must be from the Ralph Lawler types, and they pick it up, or from another podcast. Because I did talk about Sam calling me horse. On another podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So there's a there's a genesis behind these nicknames. Yeah. If you ever frequent Basketball Reference, give these nicknames a look. They're hilarious. And actually, I did Google some of them earlier uh, when I was trying some of the more curious ones that I found. But uh, you can usually find sort of where these nicknames start from. Although they're not really nicknames. Nicknames are something more colloquial that you would actually say to someone that's you know your friend. I'm not going to step on the court. And say to Dirk, hey, what's up, the German sports car? <laughs> right? But you would step on the court with KG and say, what's up, Ticket? Ticket. Or Dirty. You might say, Dirk, what's up, yeah, Dirty? Yeah. How you yeah. doing, Dirty? You would say that. All right. You and I both played for the Clippers. Um, I was there during the transition from Sterling to Steve Ballmer. Um, so I, and I, Sterling was the owner when I signed there. Um, it's well documented that he tried to back out of my contract during the moratorium period. He didn't want to pay me because he didn't want to pay a white player. Um, I guess he didn't know that I was white prior to agreeing to do the contract. I'm not sure about that. But you were, <laughs> but your, your prime of your career was in LA for the Clippers. But one could describe sort of the Sterling era of the Clippers as, as the dark ages. What was, what was your experience at as a Clipper, being sort of second fiddle in Los Angeles. Um, yeah, no, it was it was a ride. It was it was times that you'd go to a nice Hollywood club lounge restaurant, and they say we only let Lakers in here. Like it was, <laughs> <laughs> but we like you, Eb, and you're a baller, <laughs> so you can come in. But usually, we only let the Lakers in here. But you can come. You know, it, it was the laughingstock of the league. Like, that's what it was. He, Donald Sterling, did not pay players, white or black, at the time. Eric Piekowski was actually the highest tenured player in contract-wise. It was, I think, you know, three-year, $12 million, the highest contract he's ever given out um, before he matched my max deal that I had with Miami. So, um, you know, we changed that around. We had a great young team. It was exciting. And they they implemented the floor. You had to spend a certain amount in the NBA back then. If they didn't implement that, I still don't know if he would have ever <laughs> spent what it was to be a competitive team. But then he did, and the city actually 
rallied behind us and the organization. And he got more love when he went out to restaurants and things like that. So it even changed his mindset uh, about spending money. What was your last year there? 07, 08 or 06, 07? Yeah. So I tore my Achilles, um, 07, 08, something like that. And uh, uh, that was my last year there. Did you practice in the practice facility in Playa Vista or were you guys over in the sports club with all the G-pop? So the money I made and the revenue I made for the team built the Playa Vista one. That, I love that you say that's that. That's the one Elton Brand built. <laughs> but I wasn't there yet. It was being built. So I was at the the the, the country club, like spa type yeah. gym in, uh, by Manhattan was, Beach. Yeah, the, it was like Manhattan Beach Spectrum or Sports the Spectrum. Spectrum or yeah, they changed like the name. But yeah, it was it was nice though. Some celebrities used to come in and work out while we were trying to practice. It was cool. Before we moved into the new Amway Center, we practiced at a sports club in Orlando, um, uh, up in Maitland. And we had like a private area with a weight room and locker room and um, and the court, obviously. But if we wanted to use a hot tub or cold tub, we had to cross over into um, the sports club with all the, the paying members and guests. And I started using the cold tub with Richard Lewis um, in 09 and 2010, those two years. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it's just the practice schedule or whatever, but we would always get in the cold tub and there was this one dude who was probably like 65 and he would get in with us, but he would be naked (laughs) and, and his hairs would get everywhere. And so you're sitting there trying to get a pre post-practice tub in. And I mean, just, it's, I'm, 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 I'm extremely grateful having been through that to have experienced the house that EB built in, in, in Playa Vista and now this wonderful facility we have in Camden. <laughs> my, my pleasure. I'm glad uh, you didn't have to get hairs on you from the cold plunge. Do you ever think about your own game and how it would translate across different eras? Like, would you have to evolve? Would you be forced to evolve? What, what does prime Elton Brand look like in 2018, 2019 NBA? Oh, absolutely. So... When I was in the league, it was two or three seven-foot plotters on each team to stop Shaq, Hakeem Olajuwon, David Robinson. You had to have two or three seven-footers just to defend these guys. You know, Patrick Ewing was with the Knicks, but then he was with Orlando and Seattle. Hakeem was with Toronto. You know, it's like they were phasing out. You know, David Robinson was already gone. He was there my rookie year. Um, but then, and then Shaq was the pinnacle, like, ultimate just destroyer. So we had all these big plotting centers and it was post-centric, but they were playing kind of mind games with you, all the bigs, because you were soft if you weren't on the block, if you weren't in the post. <laughs> right. But instead of taking them out, spacing them where you had an advantage, oh, you, you're soft. You're shooting jumpers. Then I started evolving because I'm like, I can't, bang. I'm six, seven and three quarters. Like <laughs> I'm not banging. So then I did you know, mid-range game and using the dribble and things like that. So Al Horford, Dirk Nowitzki, even though he shot threes, um, you know, we were like top ranking for mid-range games. So I would have absolutely shot threes. There, there's no there's no way that today I'd shoot as many elbow jumpers right. as I shot back then. I'd have to definitely switch that up. Your co- your coach wouldn't allow it. He your coach wouldn't allow it. You know, it's, it's interesting. The for, First of all, you brought up Al, and that's a great example mm-hmm. of the evolution because he's he's been in the league uh, a year less than me. But 
you've seen his game evolve mm-hmm. where he used to pick and pop to 17. Yep. Now he pick and pops to the three and it yep. creates all sort of stress on the defense. Yep. You know, he's either able to shoot a three at a respectable rate or attack a closeout, get downhill, make plays. Yep. Right. That's, that's tough. I was going to say though, too, uh, like even with me, like I, I'm historically, I think one of the better mid-range shooters in the league in the last five or six years, I'm top 10 in the league. And like, Internally, the Sixers are telling me to shoot more threes. Right. right? That's right. not if you can just step back two feet. Sometimes yeah. it's not that easy. It's not that easy. <laughs> it does not come that easy. And another name that I played with was Paul Millsap. Yeah. Around the rim, plotting Utah, but expand his game. It's like all star. Like I've seen him develop it. So I definitely had to, to transition into more of a just floor spacer. That's what the game is today. So you'd be a. Full time five. Stretch five. Stretch five. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you'd switch everything on defense. Switch everything. Pre injury, your footwork and agility was was pretty incredible. I don't yeah. think I don't because of like I don't no offense yeah. because of just your, the way you look right your your natural body type. Yeah. I don't think people give you enough credit for your athleticism. You mean my chiseled frame? <laughs> Is that what? <laughs> well, there was pudgy Elton. <laughs> At Duke, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then you eventually, yeah. No. But no, I, I, you're, you're. I think your, I think your, your skill set would look really well, you know, at at 25 in today's game. No, absolutely. And then, uh, you know, to throw some kudos to Jerry Krause, he was talking about arm length and wingspan during that draft when I came out, and he's like, he just has a short neck, you know, because I have, a, <laughs> you know, seven three wingspan at right. You know, six, seven, and three quarters. Like he knew about those kind of things pre-analytics. It makes it hard to compare players and eras, though, because of of this notion of the game evolving at all times, right? So, if you take, let's say, a point guard who played in the '90s, right? Well, their primary job was to bring the ball up the court and sort of get the offense into a set. And generally, you're going to play out of the post. That was what point guards did. Yep. So what does, and I'm, this is not a knock on anybody because you don't, again, it's hard to say, but like, what does Charlie Ward's game look like in today's NBA? Right. 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 I think about myself. So like, for, for instance, like defensively, right. I have the benefit of digging on the post. I have the benefit on an ISO of a big flooding the low box in the eighties and nineties. That's a legal defense. Right, you you either had to come on a double, like full on, or you had to guard your guy. Right. So there was a, there was a harder element there to guard one on one. Now I could have hand checked. Right. Right. <laughs> that, that that's different. But I think that's one of the reasons, like people like to compare players from different eras, teams from different eras, style from different eras. The one constant, right? I think there's two actually. One is that the game always evolves, and, yep. and players evolve with it. Uh, and two, there is no substitute for people that make shots. Making shots, there's definitely no substitution for that. And uh, also the 2.9 rule, that's very important. You can have a big in the paint for 2.9 seconds to basically be big around the rim. Yeah. 80s and 90s, they take the center and move them out to the three-point line, just have them stand there because you had to be arm's length Right. With your man. So the boxes. Or clear. go on the double. Or go on the oh, double. Full on go. Yeah, 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 every yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Barkley, right. Jordan. You know, we've seen right. it all the time. How can, you had to double these guys. You had to full on double, which led to 
created shots, open shots, but you had to double or be arms, arms length within your man. I kind of, I, I've kind of seen that evolution, even even though they changed the, the three second rule and the legal defense rule before I came to the league. I've seen that evolution happen over the last thirteen years, mm-hmm. where when we, you know, were playing with Dwight in Orlando, initially teams would would come and double the post, and then they figured out like we're just shooting threes. We just put shooters around them. And you see that a little bit with Joe as well. Joe is a dominant post player. Yep. And in, in 1993, Joel Embiid would command a double team every time down the floor. Every time. Now there's more sophisticated ways to combat his skill set. Absolutely. And it makes, I think it makes it tougher on the, on the big. Oh, oh, absolutely. You're like It's harder to read. You don't know where they're coming from. I remember one game, you, you brought up Dwight. I think it was against the Hawks. It was like 40-something and 20 rebounds, and, and they lost. Yeah, you're yeah, yeah. it was yeah. in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah in the playoffs. Right? <laughs> yeah. No, no, we, what... the, we we beat them four zero the year before. Right. This was in ten. We right. beat them four zero. Right. Two thousand eleven, we play them in the first round. We're the we're the higher seed. Right. And yeah, they just basically said, "Let's." Let, I think Dwight averaged thirty eight for the series, something crazy like that. Thirty eight right. and eighteen. Right. right. But Dwight's going to get his numbers. He's going one on one in the post, right. and we're shutting everybody else off. There you go. Yeah. Makes it it makes it hard. Um, the end of your career, and I asked I asked Dirk about this too. Um, I read something you said to, I believe it was Stack Magazine in 2014 that, that like post injury, that you, you know your whole mindset was I just I just want to play I just want to be on the court like that's what's important to me more than anything else. But then there's another side to it, right? So you're you were an all star, you were a max player, you had a family. Yeah, yeah, it's read something else. Your daughter's favorite quote was "Bye, bye, data." At the end of your career, and and so at those last few years, you're not seeing the on court production the same as as it was in your prime. You're maybe in and out of the rotation at times, and you've got a family. How difficult was that time period of your career to sort of balance all those things? Yeah that that was that was a really tough period for me. I mean, my wife, Seneca, is very supportive. My kids, they were young enough that they weren't in high school, that I'm taking them away from their friends. This is when I played with the Hawks and, you know, Dallas for that year. And then we were based in Philly. So coming back to Philly, that was easy. But, you know, that time in Atlanta, I basically looked at it as a mentorship role. Like I'm at the end of the bench with, you know, Lou Williams and (laughs) other players, and I'm talking them up like, listen, like, you're going to get a shot. And then Kyle gets hurt. He's starting the next game. Like He still talks about that and thanks me for that. Like, let's go to the weight room. Let's not do something else. And, and that, that provided what I looked for on the court, the, comp, the, comp, the competition part on the court, helping the young players grow and develop really gave me something. Like That fulfilled me. Like Just being that quote-unquote OG to help lead these guys to the next level or just help them maintain a path. Cause I knew I've seen it all. I was all star and all NBA and then I'm hurt and then I'm just okay. And I'm trying to figure out my life and which way I'm going to go. And, um, you know, not getting the minutes and starting a game, then not getting a minutes and then off the court family, how that transition was working. So it, it felt good to be able to give back to the game. And that's where my mindset was. Cause I seen former all stars say, I'm not coming off the bench. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm, and then you see it now in the NBA. You see it now. You see it right I've now. seen it for yeah. the last decade, and they don't get the opportunities that I have. They're not looked at as a management type. 
because they yeah. won't sacrifice for the betterment of the organization or be selfless enough to help someone else on their team. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know if I was going to bring this up, but you kind of brought it up. And I've had teammates, uh, you know, as I progressed throughout my career, who were older than me. And, and I've seen guys who have done what you did and embraced that role. And I've seen guys who, towards the end of their career, were complete assholes. And you zoom out now, you know, five to eight years later. And you see where they are in the second part of their their, their lives and in, in their second careers, and the guys that were assholes are having a difficult time. I agree, I agree. And you see the guys that weren't assholes, Malik Rose. I'm reading quotes about him when he played with the Knicks, not just the Spurs, with the Knicks, how he helped guys and told them the right thing to do, and how executive in Detroit, like it it carries over. I mean, it's seen in the marketplace, and and it's authentic and it's true because. There was times when I was, you know, pretty full of myself and could be considered an asshole. <laughs> but I grew. I grew. You know, I paid amends. Like, I'm a different person. And I've yeah. been injured and having those obstacles led me to be who I am today. So, for sure. That's interesting that you say that, 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 that the injuries and maybe uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a humbling process, right? And yep. um, you talk about rehabbing from an Achilles injury could be one of the most humbling processes uh, known to humans. I mean, really, truly, it's as tedious as they come. Do you think across the league, I'm not saying within our our own organization, do you think across the league that role of mentorship, kind of having that OG on the bench, do you think that is valued where it should be, or do you think it's it's a little bit undervalued? Across the league, especially with... uh you know, teams trying to get as young as they can, you know, other teams, not our team, of course, not caring if they win or not, just trying to get as many young, talented players to give them a shot is definitely undervalued. Um, For example, I've heard when the Sixers were rebuilding, they were reaching out to, you know, Sam Hinkie and other people like, listen, I can help that team. I can help that team. But they decided to stay young until I came around. And when I came around, I'm not competing for women, I'm not on Instagram. I drive a nice car, but it's, you know, it's fuel. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's fuel-based. Like, it's an electric, like, plug-in car. Like, it's like I'm Wait, not— you got rid of the minivan? No, I still—of course I have the minivan <laughs> okay. and the 96 Land Cruiser. No, I still okay. have it, but I'm not competing. Yeah. Like, I want you to be the best you, and, and that's it. So it's definitely undervalued because you can give so much. Your last couple years— uh, you've obviously made a, a very good living as a player. Um, did you have an idea that you wanted to get into the front office? Was there a clear path that you saw? Obviously, you couldn't have predicted sort of this meteoric rise to become a GM within two years. But did you see a path uh, in those last couple of years of playing? So with the Atlanta Hawks, we won 20-something games in a row. Um, you know, 60-win team. Eastern Conference Finals, and they felt I was part of that environment that they built, you know, use the buzzword culture that they built. And they're like, we want you around. We want you to come in right away. Assistant GM, they offered it right there. Good money, like, you know, TVs offering money, you know, I have other opportunities in business. And I'm just like, I'm not ready to give what it takes. Like I've shadowed, I know what it takes. I know what the hours are. You see me, I'm here at you know, 7.30, I leave it. After the game at 11 p.m., like yeah. that window, I'm relationships, I'm working, I'm studying the game, I'm 
putting all this together. So I just wasn't ready. And, you know, you alluded to it. My daughter's first phrase, bye-bye, da-da. So I said I need to spend time with my family. So I did, you know, yoga. I'm riding my bike. I'm just taking the kids to school, dropping them off. Teachers are talking trash. Like, it's rare we see both mom and dad pick up and drop off. I'm like, yeah, I don't have a job. F you. You know what I mean? Like, that's the life I was living. And I enjoyed it to a point. And my wife's like, look, you're going to need a challenge. Your mind, the way your mind works, you're going to need a challenge. You're going to need to find something to do. I guess you wanted me out of the house. (laughs) But that's when I really took it serious and started looking into opportunities. So I was offered the assistant GM. And Sam Hinkey took me to breakfast and said, I want you to have a credit card and be the mentor that we just talked about that are underappreciated with the team, but not on the team. Just be a mentor, come around, take the guys to breakfast, lunch, and just, you know, teach them about being a professional and being in this marketplace and things like that. Then that changed into when, you know, Jerry Colangelo, he might have called Coach K. I don't know what happened, but it became, we want you in the locker room. That's when we think you can affect change. You don't even have to play. Brett Brown, Coach Brown saying you don't have to play. Join the team. And I'm like, well, I'm on vacation right now. If you got to pick someone else, (laughs) I get it. (laughs) I understand. And they're like, no, we'll wait the two weeks. We want you. So I came back, thought about it, and came back as a player. But I said, listen, if there's opportunities afterwards in management, I want in. And that's what the genesis was. That's where it started. Let's take a quick break from my conversation with Elton to hear from our sponsor. A room filled with heroes, Dan Hansis, Greg Rosenthal, Chris Wessling, and Mark Sessler of the Around the NFL podcast deliver all the latest news in the NFL. As NFL writers and reporters, the ATN crew has exclusive access to industry insiders and team personnel, allowing their listeners to feel in on all of the action. The ATN Podcast has you covered 52 weeks a year, recapping every game and every big story. If it happens in the NFL, you will hear it on ATN. As the NFL preseason unfolds, stay up to date with the latest storylines affecting your favorite players and teams by following along with the ATN Podcast three times a week. Whether it's a buzzworthy position battle, a new addition to the injury report, or perhaps a rookie stealing the show, Around the NFL highlights everything you need to know ahead of kickoff 2018. Subscribe now to the Around the NFL podcast and keep up with all 32 teams all year long. Available on your favorite podcast app or NFL.com. There are job sites that send you tons of the wrong resumes to sort through. That's not smart. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash Reddick to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Reddick. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-E-D-I-C-K. ZipRecruiter.com slash Reddick, the smartest way to hire. And now back to my conversation with Elton Brand. I did not know that story. I, that's the first time I've heard that. Yep. So this time last year, you're you're prepping for the or you're doing the G League draft basically, yep. um, and now you're you're the GM of uh, of the 76ers. At what point this summer 
were you like, oh shit, I might actually get this job? And also uh, to follow up that, did you did you want it initially? Right. So good question. It is another another story you do not know because no one knows it. But, <laughs> but you're in the brotherhood, so I'll share with my brother. I met with Josh Harris, the owner, who deserves a lot of credit. He is a hands-on owner. Like he really cares. Like you know, I don't know what the media says about him, but he does care. Met with him <clears throat> probably three weeks before this the actual tournament search happened. And we have breakfast and he says, hey, EB, um, you're going to be a great GM one day. Hopefully it's for us. But if not, you know, we're going to give you the resources and tools to continue to grow you. Like you're close, like you're you're great. We love you, this and that. Um, and then he mentioned some other names. And I'm like, well, if you could get that guy, you need to go get him. <laughs> like I might lose my job. But listen, if you could get... Yeah. Who you're talking about? I know the, I know the names. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you could get those guys. Yeah. You need to ex- yeah. expend some resources and see how you could get those guys. And I think that might have put me in a different light. Like, I will do what's best for the organization and go back to the Burbs and play with my kids if that means that the right trajectory is happening for the team. And then I got the call back that I'm going to go interview with the external candidates. So I'm like, okay, so we got the analytic group, you know, who's great, Alex Rucker, Sergey, you know that group. Yeah. They're amazing. Ned Cohen from the league office, Mark Eversley. He applied and interviewed for a GM himself. It's like, okay, EB, we want you to get this thing. We're a group. We're, we're going to help you put your deck together, your PowerPoint. We're going to get this. Then everyone's getting invited, and it's crickets. It's a competition now. Internally. <laughs> Internally. Yeah. Now it's the best man wins. It's like... Hey, Alex, we talked about some data on, uh, you know, so-and-so. <laughs> He's going for it, as he should. It's human nature. Right. So, I, you know, I, I put my PowerPoint together, spoke with David Falk and, you know, some other people and basically articulated my vision to them in the group. Um, got some help with internally from the Sixers, like just to, just to create my vision, because it's our vision. We've been doing this for five months. That's what people don't understand. Like, I'm not by myself. We've been doing this. Coach Brian has been a part of it. But from the management side, this is what we've been doing. Uh, And then the second interview, that's when I said, this could be real. They started asking real questions like, um, you know, this player versus that player. What do you see here? What would you, you know, do if this happened? And, you know, I've hired people from my G League experiences and front office experience. I said, okay, these are real questions. This isn't just going through it. And that's when it became like, this could come into fruition. I'm going to give you a hypothetical. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> the hypothetical is there's two scenarios. The first scenario is you have your current job and how you came about your current job was that you were groomed for a number of years from uh, the previous GM who spent five or six years teaching you the job ins and outs. He decides to retire He's a little bit older. Second scenario is your two predecessors left under awkward circumstances and you've been thrust into this role. So in those two scenarios, how does your approach differ, change in this hypothetical? Great hypothetical. So in the first scenario, that's where I was going. Like there was a secession plan. Like it was, that's what it was. Like that's where I was headed. Then I was thrust into the second scenario and I could have said I was offered a three-year deal. And I'm like, I don't know who you're bringing in here. I don't know if I'd like them. Like, the money's great. I appreciate it. But 
you know, let's talk later. Like, let's see who you bring in there. Will I have access? Will I still grow? Yeah. And will I like this human being? Like, I the money's great, but no thank you. So that, you know, again, set me apart. And I took a risk by stepping up. Because you see, my predecessors each had a, what, two-year window. Yeah. I could have had a cushy three-year run and got my own team that was rebuilding for five years. But I just felt like I had to step up for my group. You've been around the group down there. They're yeah. great. I want them to feel safe. I want them to feel like there's a future. And if I have to step up to to do that, then that's what I had to do. That's what my mindset was. And that's what I was thinking. Like, if I have the opportunity, I have to step up for this group so they can feel safe and they can feel like there's a future. Because if someone else comes in, you know what it is. Yeah. I'm going to spell that out, actually. And that spell that was, I think, one, I'm not going to speak for Josh or Dave, yeah. uh, the owners, but, you know, let's say they go out and hire an external candidate, then all these people that have been here for the last four years, five years, six years, whatever it is, that have helped to build our program and helped to build our culture and helped to turn this thing around, all of a sudden, that external candidate is going to want to bring in their own people. Yes. And both, I'm, it's interesting that you said this because I, I, having talked to Josh, I feel like that was a little bit of hesitancy on his part as well. Because he really trusted, right, the group that we already had in place. So who is the guy that can sort of lead that group and turn out to be you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like it's a, you know unfortunate chain of events that happened to put me in this position. Sure. But it's true. From you know people that do the equipment to people that do player development, like we like our group. Someone else comes in. It's their right to change that and for them to be comfortable and have who they want around. So... Yeah, fair and unfair. That's yeah, it's true. Are you are you on social media? Not at all. You're not on social media. Not at all. Were you on at any time as a player? I did one day on Twitter. <laughs> one day? Yeah. One day. <laughs> what why the why this such a short experiment? <laughs> uh, I, I was not forced to, but they kept asking. I'm with you know, the Clippers, it kind of was like, you know, just Bud and, you know, Shaq and uh, you know, other people like that were we're pretty big on the, the platform. Uh, and then Dallas, Hawks, like they kept asking me. I got back to Philly, I think, and I, I said, yeah, I'll try it. And I did one day, and my phone was buzzing all night. Mm. And I just hated that energy. Like people wanting a piece of me, like, yeah. oh, this, oh, that, hey, hey, hey. And it's just like, whoa, that's not me. I'm good on all that. I don't have anything that I want to promote about me, about my life. I mean... I, I can share some great green tea recipes, but I don't have anything to to give in that aspect. So I just hated it. Do you, you know that I'm off? I'm off all of all forms of social media. I'm I'm, I'm done. I there's a there's a, I got a I'm going to plug a podcast here. If you don't listen to Sam Harris waking up, I would highly recommend it. Um, he did a recent podcast on digital humanism where he talks a lot about social media, uh, sort of the the ad based industry and the algorithms that create sort of a curated feed that basically runs in a cycle and you listen and hear and read the same things over and over because you like it. And that creates uh, a really dangerous tribalistic atmosphere. It's my only, my only plug for the day, but that, that I, I would highly recommend listening to Sam Harris's podcast. Social media became sort of a toxic thing for me. And I found myself too. I found along with what I'm saying, I found myself, whether it was with NBA writers, politics, um, 
I don't fashion. I, you go down the list: right. trivial things, right. meaningful things. Right. It ended up just being very vanilla. It was all the same. And I, I found myself: what if I if I actually want to go get a different perspective, I can't find it on Twitter. Right. It's interesting. No, very interesting. You, you know, you speak to the tribalism and basically, you know, rewinding the same thoughts again and again, talking to the same people about the way you feel, and that just bubbling up over time. So, of course, that's a problem. And then. You know, the, the serotonin dopamine spikes when you get a like, when you get a hit, like Or the reverse of that. Or when you don't get a hit. When you when you when you get a negative comment after yep. a game. Right. Right. How do you respond to that? Like it really you feel Does it. That you linger. Does that it. linger? Uh, do you like, think about someone's comment for two days? There are I mean, I I'm I I would say I'm guilty. Right. I, I I'm of the four hundred and fifty players in the NBA, I would say I'm probably in the bottom 10% of people that actually read their comments. But I will admit, occasionally I did read comments and stuff would linger. And I'd be t- it'd be two days later and I'd be like, why is this? Why am I still bothered by this? I, 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 and I'm around it, so I don't understand it. It's like Big Bubba Eat Shrimp at 187 said. And I'm like, why do you care? <laughs> Who the hell is that guy? Why does that affect your day? Like I've been around it a lot and I see it and I internalize. I understand. Oh, so so it's, it's not for me. It's not for me. I want to talk about uh, skill sets. So yeah. I think there's certain skills you develop as players, you know, di- discipline, uh, diligence, uh, you know, obviously your work ethic or public figures. So you're, you're thrust into a spotlight. You're always in front of a camera. So you develop public speaking skills. Um, hopefully you develop communication skills. What skills do you think have parlayed well from your playing career? To this job, and what skills do you feel like maybe you still need to develop more? Um, for sure, communication. You know, communication. Um, just knowing how to manage a room. You know, I was talking to, to Danny Ainge, and he's like, "Yeah, they people think on the outside. People that are not on the inside, they just think you say, oh, I like that player, and you you know, draft them or give them money for it.' It's more about the management of people and your relationships." of those people. Like we, we discussed my group today. Like I, I think they're tops and their verticals in the NBA, but me being at the top and, you know, them making recommendations to me and how I give that message to the group, how I give that message to ownership, how I communicate to the players, how I communicate to the media. I think that was one of the biggest you know, advantages I have is just being in that locker room for many years and having all types of different personalities, all types of levels. Like you have all stars, you have end of the bench guys, you have all different ages, you have all different type of people you have to work with in a daily environment. So that communication and being able to communicate and get the best out of others, I think that was a pure advantage. What you're talking about though is 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 emotional intelligence. Yeah. Because I do think on some levels how I use myself as an example, how I communicate with Landry and how I communicate with Brett is two different things. Right. 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 It, it has to be. Right. Do you, I would assume you find that happening on a daily basis in your current job. Yeah. You know, so as a player for, you know, 16 and a half years before I was cut, uh, <laughs> I, I had a different Wait, hold, on. You, hold, on, hold on a second. You were not cut. Well, like, come retired. on. You got asked. Yeah, you were yeah, retired. Yeah. You were right. basically retired. Right. And they said, you come back from vacation. We have a spot for you. <laughs> and you don't have to play. And I did play. And I had a double-double, yeah, too. Yeah, but anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so you, you, you speak to 
the player is different than you'd speak to, you know, a 55 year old owner or your coach. But I really try to be authentic, take the ego out. Like, for example, I saw one of my AAU teammates and it's just organic. I'm like, yo. But I'm like in the office setting. I'm like, (laughs) but it's like, you know, it's called like, like code switching. Like you're in an environment with players, you talk one way. Your environment in business, you talk another way, but I try not to do that. I just try to be me all the time. So that yo might come to, I might see an owner and say that. Like I just, and they might not like it. They might like it, but me, I just have to be authentic because when I was younger, I was conscious of that, trying to say, oh, I'm under the tutelage of Coach K and, you know, use big words and just be seen as smart and intelligent. But now it's like, I am who I am. I, I read books, I try, and I'm going to get this job right for myself and others. But don't you think that all of your experiences in life, your your background, where you were raised, in sports specifically, your teammates, right? Like my experience as an AAU player helped shape my personality. I'm the only white kid on an all-black team from the other side of the state in right. Virginia, right? right? I'm appropriating things from them and vice versa. Right, I get to Duke. I, I got half half of my teammates are white, half of my teammates are black. Right. You know, I, I'm I'm speaking one way to Coach K. I'm speaking another way to my professor, right. who's teaching, you know, culture anthropology. Like yep. it's yep. all these experiences sort of formulate our personalities, formulate our language, formulate the ways that we communicate. Absolutely, and the way it can't. It, it can't, and I, I'm just saying, it happens organically. I, totally. I don't try to manipulate things. When you get to a certain age. When you get to, exactly. Yes, when you get to a certain totally. age and a certain place in your life. Totally. It comes with maturity, to, too. It, it comes yeah. with maturity. You try to manipulate it. Oh, I'm in this crowd. I need to be this way. I'm gonna, so now I just try to be me. But for sure, it gets maturity. You're not doing certain things at 19, but you're doing <laughs> it at 34, hopefully. Yeah. When you, you've obviously only been here uh, or been in this position for a few months, do you find yourself reaching out, you don't have to name names, but do you, do you find yourself reaching out to certain people uh, for advice, for leaning on them? Because I, I, I like this I like this notion, this cycle of sort of wisdom and sort of this cycle of mentorship, right? So you provide, you were providing that mm-hmm. at the end of your career for young players. Is there anyone providing that for you as you are now sort of a, a, a rookie again, a rookie GM? Absolutely. So there's other GMs that I, I speak to, ex-GMs that I speak to. Uh, you know, David Falk, you know, the business of basketball, he's, you know, 40 years in it. He's seen it all. He's been great. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I, I need it. I need it because uh, there's so many things daily that you deal with that are on your plate that the players don't hear about. Coach might not even hear about. You know, the media certainly doesn't hear about that you have to deal with um, that I didn't even know about. Now, I remember making recommendations on 15% of it, 20% of it when, you know, the other GMs were here. But now I'm 100% of it from medical to all of it. It bubbles up to me. Hey, EB. Hey, EB. Hey, EB. So definitely have to lean on others. We were running out of time here, but I would be remiss if we did a whole podcast and and didn't mention Duke. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The brotherhood is real. What do you think? What do you think? Besides Coach K, yeah, because he's the obvious link because he's been there for so long. But what what do you think it is about uh, the Duke Brotherhood that allows players across different generations to 
to really find common ground and and get along. Like my 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 best friends from Duke are honestly guys I didn't even play with. <laughs> right. It's, it's silly to say, but it's the right. truth. Right. I mean, I, I tried tried my best to keep you and the podcast out of the headlines, but <laughs> yeah, you know, to me, I think the brotherhood could be strengthened a little bit. Honestly. Yeah. For example, like Grand Hill. Like when I talk to him or reach out to him, like sometimes he doesn't get back to me. Like you, for example, I might not get back to you, but I have an excuse like, Jay, oh, that was my other phone. Oh, how you been? And then we catch up and everything's cool. And and I'm kind of jealous because other people outside of the brotherhood have a good relationship with them. And I'm jealous of that because I love him. Like authentic, he is who he is. He's 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 the epitome of it, you know, an OG that's doing stuff like politics. He he gives how he he's got feels. his hands in everything. He got yeah. his hands in everything, you know, minority owner. So I, I'd like to to strengthen that, Grant. If you're listening, um, be my friend, please. <laughs> Grant, by the way, was was a uh, was a vet when I was a rookie, and, and uh, you know, I have to say he did one of the nicest things ever for me. I'm going to give him some credit here. So we. Got like three off days my entire rookie year. And Duke is like, hey, we really want to retire your jersey. So I'm looking at the schedule and I give Brian Hill like three days. Hey, can we do one of these three days? Any chance we're going to get these days off? I don't know. I don't know. So like three days, Duke has scheduled this now. And three days before my jersey retirement ceremony, Brian's like, hey, uh, we're going to have Sunday off. <laughs> and I was like, I was going to miss practice. <laughs> See? And and G man he he got a PJ for us oh, and we wow. went up from Orlando went to the game I could spend some time with my family before the game got back on the plane went back you know there there was nothing ever I literally ever reciprocated from me to him for doing that it was just one of the kindest gestures ever that's brotherhood I that is brotherhood he drove me home from a game one time to the hotel <laughs> dude. You went a month. I, I, I sent you a congratulatory text after you got the GM job, and I got crickets for a month. A month, Evie. A month. You see? Yeah. The bat, the bat phone is real. The bat <laughs> phone is real. Do you, do you, uh, I, this is sort of my last like question, but Coach K, I, I always use you as an example when I talk about <clears throat> this Coach Kism of unpacking your bags because. You know, when when our class came in in, in uh, two thousand fall of two thousand two, you know, we had some highly rated guys, and and so you know, subsequently, you know, with Luol and and some other guys, Josh McRoberts, like he would always in the fall talk about sort of unpacking your bags, and he used you as an example of of guys that are highly rated that probably won't be there four years, but while you're there, like unpack your bags, kind of buy in, you know, be there, right? Don't have one foot in, one foot out the door. Do you think it's impossible to do that now with the one and done rule? Yeah, I think it, it is. is. And, yeah, and as a fan, do you th- it's, it's, I'm a Duke fan. Right. I'm a Duke fan. It's hard now. It's so hard because, you know, you're based, like, when people ask me, like, does Duke cheat and, you know, do they give money? I don't want to put any extra pressure on us, but I'm like, why? Why would you have to? You're on ESPN. You're going <laughs> to yeah. go to the, you know, Elite Eight at least, possibly championship Final Four. You're under Coach K learning. You're going to go get drafted top 10, like, he doesn't have to. Like he's gonna right. that's that's just a recruiting pitch on itself, just how great Coach K is in the program. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one, you know, you're not, they're not unpacking their bags and they don't want to get hurt. They don't want to dive into the loose balls. You know, they, it's not that they don't care because they do and they do want to win. But since probably 10th grade, ninth grade, even earlier these days, they're projected to be in the NBA. That's their goal. So that's why the one and done thing, it's, it's touchy for me because I, I understand. You obviously, you had a chance to leave after your freshman year, but yeah. you, you knew going in, Hey, I'm, I'm in and out. But you still unpack your bags. It, yeah, it was a little different for me. Like you were the first guy, though, right? Yeah, You're you, yeah. Corey, Will Avery. Yeah. I might be missing one other guy from that from no, that draft. Trajan but, got drafted, but, but he was, was he was five a years, yeah, yeah. fifth year senior. <laughs> Poor Trajan. That's good. Five years. <laughs> no, but uh, <laughs> but you guys were the first ones to leave yeah. the program early. Yeah, and I was the first one to announce that right. I was leaving. So you don't have to bring up that email that that woman sent me. But anyway, <laughs> Google that, please. <laughs> um, so freshman year, I had a chance to leave, and I would have been 15th through 20th. We lost to K- Kentucky in Elite Eight. Yeah. We were up, and you know, single parent house, like public housing for real, for real. My mom's like, "You're gonna leave me here? You're not gonna leave? What do you mean?" Like that's the pressure I was facing. Wow. My own mother. Wow. It's like, what? You're not leaving? You're gonna leave me in this basically shithole? Like, and I'm talking to Coach K, and I'm like, I'm crying. I'm like, Coach. I'm, what what are we going to do here? And he goes, listen, you come back, you're going to be a top three pick, and we're going to the Final Four. You're going to be on the cover of magazines. Trust me. And I trusted him. And midway through the season, I'm not starting. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't start two games. He's cursing me out. Go take a picture for ESPN. Get off my bench. And I had to put in more work. I put in the work. Like, I put in more work. Like, true story. Chris yeah. Burgess is dunking backwards in the game. My life career is like in front of me, fought it, fought it, went hard. That's why I love him so much. Like he pushed that button in me to get the best out of me for himself, the organization. Because who knows? We could have been okay. You know, we lost in the finals to UConn by three or whatever. But he pushed the buttons. He pushed me to excel at the detriment possibly of the team. But he knew there was more in me to give. And, you know, went number one in 17 and a half year career. And, and, and the rest of the story. But I believed in Coach K. So, and then ever since then, any decision I had to make, mom, anyone else trusted it. Like, yeah, we get it. That's an incredible story. It's true. All right. Um, John Jackson from Duke. Uh, there's the recruiting pitch that you need to send out this <laughs> <laughs> uh, All good. EB, thanks for coming on the pod. Uh, really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, yeah, congrats again on your on your new gig. My pleasure. Glad to, glad that I'm your boss. <laughs> All right, thanks. As always, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the JJ Reddick Podcast. We'll have more episodes coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, they will be a little sporadic given the NBA season, but I'll try to get out as many podcasts as possible over the next couple months. Uh, I want to thank EB again for coming on the show. He was a great guest. As always, To the listener, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Until next time, talk to you soon.